You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are here in our second week covering Soji Shimada's The Tokyo Zodiac Murders, taking a look from the beginning of Act 2 up to the author's note. Herds. Flex. So, who would you say is the best detective? Have you ever read the Father Brown series? Who? I don't know anything about Christian's Herds. What about Philo Vance? What? Vans? Like the shoes? Ah. Uh, Miss Jane Marple? Is in maple syrup? Chief Inspector Magret? Is he a policeman in Maguro? Hercule Poirot? Is that a liquor? I don't know what to say. You've never read any of those detective stories, but still you insist that the tales of Sherlock Holmes are foolish. I didn't say I disliked him. I just said that BBC Sherlock hadn't aged particularly well. Oh, get him! <laughs> anyway, yeah, this is Death of the Reader. That was an <laughs> excerpt, remix, if you will, Death of the Reader special uh, from the novel that we're covering today, The Tokyo Zodiac Murders by Soji Shimata. What uh, <laughs> What a ridiculous stretch we are covering Yay! today. I, this is the best. Here's the thing. I said uh-huh. last week on the show that really the, this book, the product was act one yes. and the rest was just a bonus. Mm-hmm. And actually what it is. I yeah, I really didn't expect that to be so literal as yeah. we went into the rest of this book. I wanna like I always struggle with where to put the gaps for these episodes, but I I basically had to decide within myself, you know, do I actually want there to be a proper mystery for part two? Do I even need there to be a, a you know a new twist in the plot? Mm-hmm. Because really, until even arguably Act Five, there isn't really a lot in the way of twisty twists for the murder mystery here. No, um, most of what we get to see, and I love this, is that we well, first off, we have our rising action, our conflict in in Act Two, and then we ride a train, and then Act Three, we go on a tram, we get to walk over a bridge, over the moon, and we meet a a policeman with a golden saber because he's like an actor pe- policeman. It's very great. And that's basically the entirety of Act 3. It's just hanging out in Kyoto. It's Here's like, the oh. thing. Yeah. Having just covered Inspector <laughs> Imanishi Investigates, yes. I would think to myself, that's perfectly reasonable. Murder mysteries uh-huh. can travel around the country and hate. do a bunch of stuff as we, as we slowly get closer to solving the mystery. But we don't get slowly co- closer no. to solving the mystery here, Herds. We just we go to the most absurd theories possible and then slowly check off this one's wrong, this one's wrong, mm-hmm. this one's wrong. The way that this stretch of the book is happening is really just Koizumi and Kiyoshi traveling around Japan, realizing how wrong they were and that all of the clues were in Act 1 to in begin with. They end up right back where they started, which is fantastic. I mean, you know, obviously there's a different case, but if you recall, Simon Brett's A Decent Interval, mm-hmm. uh, you know, friend of the show, Simon Brett, uh, which we covered on the show last year, had a similar sort of structure where we had, you know, multiple incidents, you know, yeah. in the present tense as the as the play went on. And as I was trying to solve that novel, I noticed that after speaking with every, you know, cast member, every uh, PR rep, every, you know, designer, whatever, yeah. we basically checked them off the list. We said, okay, we've had an in-depth conversation with this character. They are clearly not the killer. It's not quite the same in this, though, because none of the characters that we meet are really suspected of anything. No. And we don't, like, like, the characters that we meet in a decent interval all had something to hide or have a reason why we would suspect them that we need to clear up. Whereas the characters in uh, in Tokyo Zodiac Murders aren't really that suspicious to begin with. We're, we're led on a goose chase, Absolutely. basically. Uh, and it is thoroughly entertaining because we're just, we're, we're extremely focused in on Kazumi's point of view the entire time. And he is convinced from the second that, that Act 2 ends 
that uh, it's it's Hikishi. It's that that guy, that painter guy. He's totally not even dead. Yep. Why else would there be a double in the story if if the locked room man was was you know not alive and kicking? It and is. So he's determined to track down this man, even though it's so painfully obvious that he is not. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Like. <laughs> I mean, it is incredibly obnoxious yeah. going around. And, you know, we meet Haitaro Umeda mm-hmm. and, you know, that said, oh, maybe this is the same Haitaro who is uh, Heikichi Umezawa's son. Yes. Who yes. was also named Haitaro. It's it's not. Maybe Shusai Yoshida, who is a doll maker and fortune teller, is yeah. actually the retired Heikichi Umezawa living another life. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, and then they say that, like, and and also he knows that Heikishi was left-handed. Who could have known that information but Heikishi himself? We are watching Kazumi go from place to place, talking to character after character, assuming the worst and expecting these crazy out-of-the-box solutions. None of the assumptions that Kazumi makes come to fruition because the answer to all of the questions that he asks are incredibly mundane. He says, where did the mannequin come from? They say, well, we decided we wanted a female mannequin, so we bought a female mannequin. And like, you know, why Why do you know that Hikishi was left-handed? Well, Yeah, it's just the second-hand information from one guy who knew him at the time. It's, it's not too bad. The weird position that this sits for me uh-huh. is that it very much straddles a line between being self-aware and being a deconstruction. Mm. And I think in being self-aware, it is amazing and yep. hilarious, but it's that moments where it verges over to being a t- deconstruction that it kind of fails for me. Interesting. Because the key elements of a deconstruction to me is that you raise the tropes of the genre and then sure. employ them in a way that also critiques them. Mm. Whereas what happens here is that we go out, we employ the tropes of the genre, and we just go, oh, isn't it silly? He's assuming the worst, which yeah. kind of deconstructive, but also a little reductive. It's a little half-hearted, yeah. I think. The critique here is more to show, I, I think in the mind of Soji Shimano, because he was all about reinventing the wheel, you mm-hmm. know, reinventing the way that people see tricks in murder mysteries. And he's wanted to take, you know, the idea of a trick from something that is kind of trite and yeah. and gimmicky into something that is real. And so we understand, and this is why I think that act two and three pair so well, you know, through act two, we ramp up the tension and we create the stakes. You only have one week to solve the murder case. Yeah, it's a that very, bit's fantastic. It's a very, very simple device. Um, and then through Act Three, we break all of that tension down, and we show how mundane everything really is. And it prepares you, yeah. you know, if you are, because obviously the two of us, not only are we veteran murder mystery, you know, solvers, but we've also read certain arcane texts that allow us to understand <laughs> this magic uh, in a certain way. That's terrible. <laughs> but I feel like Soji Shimada is, um, and he, he actually apologizes in his first message to the author. He yeah. says, maybe I've given you too many hints, but I really wanted to make sure that there was no doubt that this was a fair play mystery. I want to make sure that I add on the side of, of giving you a fair go and being able to solve it. And I think that's really admirable. Yeah. I'd be very curious to see how this novel would fare with someone who was less familiar with the genre, mm. because maybe when you go out and you're exploring the different parts of Japan and coming across all of these new characters, you'd go, oh my God, maybe it is a 
Keiichi where I was yeah, just maybe. like, it's it's obviously not. There's absolutely <laughs> no way. I think overall, I totally agree with you, Herds, that this is actually a really fun exploration yeah. of the tropes without being clinically yeah. deconstructive. I, it's a really atmospheric, goofy look around murder mystery and just Japanese culture in general. I was going to say, even beyond, like, you talk about, like, the murder mystery stuff, but that's great and all, you know, this is a murder mystery show, but, like, let's put the murder mystery aside for a second. Heresy. I really just enjoyed getting to have a little trip around Kyoto. Mm-hmm. I felt like Soji Shimada had, like, gone there with his camera or maybe an art book. Maybe he, like, sketches the places that he owes and he, like, walked over the bridge, like the moon bridge, where, you know, if you go there at a certain time of night, it looks How like you're walking over the moon. It is romantic. <laughs> and he went to the philosopher's walk and he sat in the, the coffee house where Kiyoshi, like, unravels everything. And he thought, what if I just wrote a chapter about all the quaint little things? Yeah. That I that I found here, like there's there's such small anecdotes too that I just find really compelling. I want more heroes that are interested in quaint oddities. You know, it's like the Marge Simpson effect, which is like, <laughs> you know, what what am I going to bring into to show and tell today, Mom? Why don't you bring a potato? Like, why would I do that, Mom? I don't know. I just think potatoes are neat. Ben, more of that, please. Is this just 2020 just slowly <laughs> making you a more and more ordinary citizen as your regular day-to-day luxuries have been stripped from that you? Sounds re- that sounds real to me. I'm going to be a, a Marge Simpson in I don't know, 10 years. It, however many years it is to become a Marge Simpson. That's where I'm, that's where I'm heading. <laughs> at this, at this rate with 2021, who knows? Weeks. Weeks at best. Weeks at best. Watch out. I'm going to grow blue hair. <laughs> a shock of blue hair. A shock of blue hair. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing Soji Shimada's The Tokyo Zodiac Murders from Act 2 to the first author's note at the end of Act 3. Stick with us. We'll be back with more of that later in the show. You're on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are joined on the line once again by the incredible Craig Sisterton. He may talk himself down and say that there are other crime fiction experts in the world who outrank him, outclass him, outpace him, but these are lies. The true champion of the crime fiction world, Craig Sisterton. Good to have you back. Oh, Kira, boys. It's lovely to be back. I hope everything's going well down in Australia at the moment. It's it's going pretty all right. It's, <laughs> well, it's, a, nice, yeah. it's a nice cool day. We've uh, enjoyed getting ourselves through our second stretch of Soji Shimada's The Tokyo Zodiac Murders. Oh, my goodness. I think we're ready to keep rolling on this crime fiction train. Speaking of crime fiction trains, though, Craig... What? You're in the middle of a, uh, a project at the moment, hashtag 100 days, 100 books, and uh, I, I thought it'd be good to get you on to talk a little bit about not only what's coming up in the crime fiction world, but what is 100 days, 100 books? <laughs> well, it was a bit of a strange idea I had just before New Year's when I was like reflecting on 2020, such a strange year for all of us. My blogging really fell off last year. I've had my blog. I actually started that before I started doing a lot of the other stuff. I I was reviewing for a couple of magazines. And so I started it in 2009. And there's a lot of books that I loved that I haven't reviewed anywhere. I've talked about them on a podcast. I've talked about them on a a wrap-up of the best of the year. But I actually haven't done a proper review of them. So 100 days, 100 books. I'm going to blog every day. It's not – I'm not reading – a book a day. I mean, I have read, what are we now? We're just coming up to the end of February. I've read either 25 or 26 crime novels this year so far. <laughs> I need to check. I'm up, I'm up to 17 so far this year. I got some ground to catch. It's a race. 
How do you decide which novel to cover? Um, that's a great question. I have a wee bit of a list of books from last year that I enjoyed. Some are some that I read in previous years that I missed. I try and have a good mix as well. I'm trying to be conscious of authors from different countries, having a decent amount yeah. of Aussies and Kiwis, but also other countries, having some translated stuff, having plenty of female authors and LGBT authors and, and some forgotten authors, which you guys do a magnificent job of with your show, and I really love the deep dives you go into. So I'm kind of, I'll be like, oh, hang on, I've, I've reviewed three guys in a row. I better make the next one a female author. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a little bit on the go and there's a little bit of thought and planning and a little bit of spontaneity. Yeah, I think uh, it's 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 really been great to follow. And I've certainly found a few things that hopefully we can feature on the show when the, when the world tour gets to the right place. When we move away from Japan, yes. Yeah. Japan's not uh-huh. a bad place to be, boys. I mean, that's sort of... It's it's a great place to be. And actually, I wanted to I wanted to thank you because one of the really fascinating things we've found along the course of uh, doing research for our current book, The Tokyo Zodiac Murders, was an interview you sent me that you did uh, with Soji Shimada himself. Yeah, super fascinating in there having a look at him saying that mystery fiction was really looked down on as kind of a barbaric practice of the old days until he reinvigorated almost the entire country's love of it. Yeah. And there was Japanese crime fiction, but he's kind of that kind of a, I guess, neoclassical, you'd almost say, that he's gone back to the classical stylings, but it's a slightly new version of them. I would love an opportunity to, like, meet him in person one day when we're all back to, like, festivals and stuff. That would be brilliant. While we have you here, the Yanwar hashtag, Craig. Mm, yep. I keep seeing it on Twitter, <laughs> and every time I see it, I have to think about what the joke is, and I feel so silly, but it's so clever. <laughs> Did you come up with that one, or was that just part of the community's efforts? Uh, no, the the credit for that one goes to a, a wonderful book loving Kiwi called Stephanie Soper, and so we kind of just started using it, and it's just become a thing now to the point where I've actually seen um, the classic thing of uh, Australians sometimes claiming the New Zealand thing. I actually <laughs> saw it referred to as uh, Yeah Noir as like Australian and New Zealand crime writing. And I'm like Hannah, no, hold, hang on, hold up there. You can have Russell, but we want this. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah so file out Pavlova, it goes back. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> all, these, all the arguments. And then, yeah, so what? what's coming up in the world of crime fiction? There was uh, David Bishop's City of Vengeance I saw recently that looked really interesting. What else is out there for crime fiction fans who uh, who want to get their, their finger on the latest the latest release. Yeah, yeah, Craig, what's the best murder mystery novel of this year? Caught now. <laughs> Immediately. Oh, <God. laughs> Well, funnily, funnily enough, I did see, I, I had to have a little chuckle earlier today, and it's it's like one of those things where you read something and you're like, you're really pleased for the person that that's been said, but at the same, you're like, come on, come on guys. <laughs> um, where, where it was um, Ali Reynolds, the Australian crime writer, with her debut novel, Shiver, and someone had gone, thriller of the year, calling it now, and I'm just like, it's February. I mean, listen, Herds, you shouldn't talk. You've already huh? called Soji Shimada's The Tokyo Zodiac Murders our book of the year. Well, that's because it is. <laughs> that's because it is. I'm sorry. I just, I can't budge. But I, I have, I have read some really good books this year. And Ellie's book is great. In terms of what I've read so far, there's a book called Light Seekers by Femi Kiyoti. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his surname correctly. Sorry, Femi, if I'm not. I've only seen it written. I haven't heard it anywhere. It has a Nigerian crime fiction. It's a book called Light Seekers, and it's a thriller. And it's really interesting because it involves a guy who's kind of more of a – he's a psychologist and a professor, 
but he'd studied lynchings basically in the American South and he's Nigerian and then he moves back home. And then there's kind of a modern day lynching that occurs. It's just really good. He's a strong voice, amazing Nigerian setting. Yeah, sounds great. If you want to look that one up, it's Femi, F-E-M-I-K-A-Y-O-D-E. What else? Yeah, so, I mean, there's some fantastic books from female crime writers coming out too and ones I've already enjoyed. One that I will highlight for people is called Hotel Cartagena. Um, by a German author called Simone Buchholz. So Hotel Cartagena, she has a public prosecutor in uh, Hamburg, Germany, called Chastity Riley. And she's a kind of melancholy soul, uh, hard-living, hard-drinking. For this latest one, uh, it was really interesting because when I opened it, there was a dedication to Alan Rickman. And um, the day I chose to open it was actually uh, the anniversary of his death. And then I read it and I saw why, because the setup is basically that um, it's a German hotel that gets taken over by armed terrorists and Chastity and her friends are on the top floor at a restaurant um, celebrating a birthday, not Christmas, um, not in LA. <laughs> Nod to the yep. diehard setup. And obviously the, the great Alan Rickman villain Hans Gruber was German in that as well. Simone is someone who writes really poetically, though obviously shout out to Rachel Ward, who is her translator. Yeah. I think one of her earlier books, I described her as she's like a shot of really top shelf liquor. It hits you hard, but it's also kind of smooth, and there's just so much quality to it. Yeah, for sure. Sounds great. Read last last week, uh, The Quiet People by Paul Cleave. That's kind of just quietly, pun intended, about to sneak out in April, and there hasn't really been much talk about it or anything um, yet, though I imagine there will be around the time. That's excellent. I mean, Paul's three-time knives, one of one crime writing prizes in France, been a huge bestseller in France and Germany and stuff like that. He's just consistently good, fast-paced and exciting, but the characters are also rich and the settings are good and there's just little phrasings that mean that their prose kind of crackles or sings or there's just something that's a little different there. And Paul does that magnificently. The new book's really good. Goes quite dark. It's basically um, there's a crime writing couple in Christchurch um, called the Murdochs. Their son goes missing, and earlier in the day he'd had a tantrum at the fairground, and some stuff had gone wrong. And so there's people with like video footage of him having this tantrum at the fairground, and his dad's trying to deal with him. So oh, is his dad abusive? Have they killed him? Oh, they're crime writers. They know how to commit the perfect murder. They've even said that <laughs> videos of him saying it at festivals, true. like oh, we could get him away with murder. You know, kind of telling it as a joke. But obviously those videos put up later with the media, and they look terrible. It's one of those books where just things go worse, 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 worse. Oh, a little bit of hope. Worse, 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 worse. But it's written so well that it never feels bleak. I personally really loved it. Paul's always really good. And I was excited about this one, but wasn't sure what it would be like. And yeah, it really delivered. So keep an eye out for that Quiet People by Paul Cleave. Stephen Mac Jones's uh, Dead of Winter is the book I've just finished today. And this one, it's the third book. It's called Dead of Winter. It's the third book in his August Snow series. August Snow is a half Mexican, half Black American. He's been a Marine sniper. He's been in the Detroit police, got kicked out, all sorts of corruption involvement. He was kind of shunted and scapegoated, but he got back at the cops, got like a $12 million settlement because he'd been forced out. So he's now this rich guy who'd always been a poor guy. So he tries to help the community and do various things. And of course, as he's doing that, he comes across corruption and tries to do something about it because he's got the money to do it, but he's also got the Marine background and the cop background to do it. So he's a little bit vigilante and, but it's really cool. Like it's just, there's a, 
really interesting voice. You get those thrillers that are twisty and exciting, but they're written in a very straightforward way, if that makes sense. And that's not a bad thing, but a lot of books like that. And then you have those authors where there's just a little bit of flair, not too much, not trying too hard, but there's just that little bit that makes you the writing kind of sing along with the twisting plot line or the good characters or the good setting. And yeah, Stephen Mac Jones is a, a new discovery for me this year and I will be immediately getting his first two. Books. Well, Craig, thank you. If you're interested in checking out any of Craig's recommendations, be it the dead of winter, light seekers, shiver, hotel Cartagena or the quiet people, we will have links up on the podcast. Uh, and my goodness, I suppose we might even have to start a list up on the 2SER website mm. of- uh, Oh, lists, my mortal nemesis. Let's go, <laughs> let's go. Craig, it has been fantastic having you here on Death of the Reader once again. Well, thanks for having me, boys. It's always lovely to chat to two people who are so into this genre that we all love, and you do such a wonderful job with your show. Well, it's thank a you. real privilege to be invited on. No worries whatsoever. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing the Tokyo Zodiac Murders by Soji Shimada, We'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing the Tokyo Zodiac Murders by Soji Shimada, Acts 2-3 up to the first message from the author in this book. Herds has challenged me to solve this one. And last week on the show, Herds, Mm -hmm. I said that I was going to contain my answer until this week for fear of spoiling those out in the audience who may uh, not be as awake to this novel as perhaps we are. As in tune to the arcane ley lines. That's right. uh, As it were. Yes, we are not allowed to talk about the book that we've read on this show (laughs) for fear of spending an entire episode gushing about it. Whose author is a talentless hack. Talentless hack. Just so we can go on record saying that. (laughs) Uh, Just, you know, extend the mystique for a little longer. But yeah, I I want you today, today, to give me and and to give us Mm -hmm. your solution. Um, I I do want to say that, you know, the most basic explanation of the twists is not sufficient if you just say, Five times one equals six, for example. Uh-huh. That is not sufficient. I want you to give a bit more of a detail. And if you can uh, figure out, you know, because Soji Shimada was inspired by a real a real life phenomenon. If you can illuminate that trick for us as well, I'll be very impressed. Um, you'll, you'll guarantee you three, three points if okay. you can figure it out in such detail. So, Ben, have you ever seen that animated video yeah. of a chocolate bar uh-huh. where someone cuts off the top corner of the chocolate bar, makes a couple of other cuts, like one slightly diagonal okay. and horizontal and one straight vertically next sure. to that little piece that they cut out? A bunch of lines, and then yeah. And then they, they cut off the very top left block of the piece of uh, the block of chocolate, right? Yeah. Okay, and then they they take all of these pieces around, Uh they take that top left piece off, and they slide it all back together, Uh and somehow it's still a whole chocolate bar. I I mean, I haven't seen one of those, at least not that I can remember. I'm confused as to why you're using chocolate instead of a a dollar bill to demonstrate this point, but yes, go on. Oh, well, that's because, Uh Herds, the dollar bill isn't necessarily a fantastic explanation. Okay. Because I think the dollar bill is a bit of a cheap trick in Uh this book, because- Uh Surely, if you are taping bills back together, the tape would be obvious. Mm. However, if you're sticking chocolate back together with just the ever so slightest little gap to just make up for that bit missing of bit of chocolate. It's a bit of saliva to hold it together in the yeah. middle. Yeah, 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 gross, but It's a little fair. less noticeable. I think that you can get away with the trick a bit more. So say, for example, if you were to cut five women into pieces. What? Why would I do that? And then take the head of one woman and pair it with the waist down of the next woman so there's a little mm. piece missing. Then you would end up with a body with a missing head and a bunch of other bodies with their parts missing, 
because you've slid all of the pieces one body to the side. This is an interesting theory. This is outrageous. I couldn't possibly uh, challenge such a a ridiculous theory. It's so outrageous. Uh, But if that were the case. If it were. I I have to ask you, Flex, do you think that you could – have you figured out or have you got a theory, I suppose – as to which body part is which in the little diagram we've been given. Because we've got, you know, six different bodies. They're all buried at, at different depths and that sort of thing. Do you think you have an idea of which body is where? Okay. I have a confession to make, Hertz. What's the confession? I knew you were going to ask me this, so I prepared myself a list. <laughs> Yay! I was hoping you would do this. <laughs> okay, so. I'm so ready. The, uh, the body that was identified as Tokiko uh-huh. is actually Yukiko. Okay. Why do you say that? You got, you got reasoning for this? Because they are the person, mm. let me make sure I got this right, whose head was found with a set of legs with the upper chest missing. Okay. Okay. And then that set from the waist down, I believe is Raiko, whose upper torso would that have been found with Akiko, <laughs> whose lower legs are on that body, who then their upper body is with Nobuyo's legs. And then Nobuyo's upper body is with Tomiko's legs. And then Tomiko's upper body has no feet Mm -hmm. because they're allegedly missing despite being with the previous corpse. And thus we complete our circle of dismembered women. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like it. That was very quick. I like that. I like the efficiency there. I'm glad you were prepared. I'll be honest. I was was half expecting me to say that and you'd be like, there's no way you can figure that out or that's... Too complicated. What do you mean? It tells you whose body I'm part glad. was found with what. I'm glad. I'm glad that you've gone this extra length. I don't know, Herds. The thing I still cannot figure out, and mm-hmm. I'm going to take a stab at it because yeah, I assume yeah, it's one of the points that you're going to offer me, Uh-oh. is why the bodies were arranged in the order they were. That's a good question. I couldn't tell you exactly just because of my lack of knowledge of general Japanese geography. Mm. I couldn't tell you exactly the way the layout works, you know, which was found in which location. There is a map in the book, but it still doesn't elucidate it particularly well to me because, you know, maybe there's like a highway going between two of them well, that I don't know hold about. Hold on, hold on, Flash. Clearly, the six locations are based on the astrological science. So obviously, the six steps had something to do with that, some kind of magic voodoo nonsense. That's ridiculous. You think that's what you're going to argue based on? Here, here's what I think it actually is, Hertz. Come on. I think that if we look at the people that were buried deeper, it was arranged in such a way that when their first body part was found buried very shallow, mm. their other body part was found buried very deep. Interesting. So what that means is, and it says in the book that the bodies have decomposed by the time they found the later ones, mm-hmm. it means that because uh, J- Japan cremates its bodies... It doesn't have as much of a burial ritual as we do in the West. Mm-hmm. It means that, A, the other body part would have been missing and the newer found body part would have been more decomposed. So it would be more difficult to correctly identify I like uh, who was who. I like the theory. So obviously we like to talk about uh, three separate aspects. I feel like your how has been pretty well uh, elucidated here. Who, who? The, who, the who and the why. Give well, me that. Give me that for me. We got in a murder mystery novel where we have six bodies, yeah, and one of them is missing its entire head. <laughs> yeah, who else could it possibly be? I'm not saying it, but the person whose head is missing. Whose head is missing? Flex? It's Tokiko. <gasps> Tokiko, who just happens to be the daughter of the ex-wife of the accused. The thing I like here, Herds, and the thing that really sold me on this mystery really just sunk it deep into my heart here Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is I realized that we have so many different characters interested in astrology, Mm. but none of them treat Mm. it like Heikichi Umezawa. And that's treated as a thing where like, oh goodness, look at how out of touch Heikichi Umezawa was. Insane man. 
wanting to cut up his daughters and then they get cut up after he dies. That's crazy talk. He has a very unique perception of astrology. Doesn't he just? Here's what I would like to pose to you, Hurst. Here we go. What are you posing? Perhaps it is, in fact, the actual culprit, Tokiko, Mm. who has written that note trying to frame her father as a bad man, given what he did to her mother, divorcing her and then basically subjugating her under a wealthier family almost as a servant. And that also is an interesting comparison because then we have the idea that Heikichi was probably only as interested in astrology as the other people in the story, as kind of a fascination, a curiosity. So I think that that's actually a really nice way that the story is tied over there by giving us the lens of the story through Kiyoshi and Koizumi, who are two astrologically fascinated characters. We see the entire story through their lens, which is meant to kind of show us how an astrologer would actually think and thus why Heikichi probably did not think like that. Can I can I throw you one more thing? I'm not saying that you're missing any points right now, that I'm umming and ahhing over anything <laughs> particular, but if I was, I want to give you one last thing because we are dealing with the story of fortune tellers, Yes, of the telling of the future. I want you to give me your best guess as to how the culprit's, I suppose, ending is going to pan out, you know? Do you think that Kiyoshi's going to slap them in irons? Nope. Going to let them go? What's what's the outcome here? What's the ending well, for our culprit here? It, they'd be what six, Tokiko would be sixty six years old at this point, something like that. I expect that where she is going to be is uh, in Kyoto, running a handbag store in honor of her mother, which was mentioned in the second entracte uh, after Act Two. Sure, because it seems like those moments have been the kind of the pivotal clues to the story. So that's a telling of the present. You think that the, the culprit is in the handbag store with and the, with I the think, knife? I think they're going to show up and they're just going to let it be. There's nothing you can do. The statute of limitations would have passed. Okay. They have no grounds. It's more what Tokeko herself does in response. Well, I guess... Who knows how many points you got this week? It could be any number it could between be any number. zero and three. Make sure you don't miss next week for the stunning conclusion of Soji Shimada's The Tokyo Zodiac Murders from Act 4 to the end of the story. And uh, Herd's also the next book that we're going to be covering on the show. To let me know. Which I'm very excited for. Oh, that scares me. <laughs> Is it more black magic? No comment. What? Yo. Oh! You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with your Murder Mystery World Tour. We will see you next week here on the show. You're listening to 2SER 107.3.